Well, this morning, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And again, if you have been with us any amount of time, you recognize that we choose a book and we kind of go through it from start to finish. And so uh, most Sundays right now, not all Sundays, but most Sundays right now, we are going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now we are in chapter 5 this week. And if you are using one of the blue provided Bibles near you, that's going to be on page 954. So page 954. And if you're not familiar with looking at a Bible, the big number is going to be the chapter. And as we go throughout, and I reference verses, those are going to be the small numbers next to, next to words. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is what we are in. And, and this is just the, what I just described there is our steady diet of what's called expository preaching. We just let the text expose itself to us, and we are going to submit ourselves to what the text says rather than what the person behind the pulpit says. So the primary point of the text is what we try to consistently point out. We do that because Jesus himself said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we need to know what God's word says. That's the purpose of me standing up here. Not so that I can wow anybody with my ability to go from the start of a text to the end of a text. I'm up here so that we can better understand 1 Corinthians 5 as a body. And so that's the point of what we do each week, um, just called expository preaching. So we are in 1 Corinthians 5, and rather than continuing to talk about the chapter and the text, I will read it. Starting in verse 1. Paul writes, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at, all mean, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and holy God. We thank you that you have designed it so that we may be reminded of who you are and who we are each week as we approach the first day of the week here. Lord, now as we are gathered on this first day of the week, we pray that you would very clearly make it known to us how good and holy and wonderful you are and how in need of you we are. We thank you 
for Christ, our Passover lamb. We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. Lord, we thank you for one another, that we get to remind each other of this each week. God, we pray that you would help me speak clearly. We pray that this church would continue to have a faithful evangelical ministry, that we would promote the preaching of the gospel, that we would be a people who go from here and share this good news with others. Lord, help us to be an evangelistic people. Thank you for Cross City Church downtown as they prepare for um, a teaching that they are going to do on evangelism. Lord, we pray that you would bless that. Pray that that would lead to much gospel fruit. Thank you for Veritas, our partner church down there. Lord, we pray that they would stay faithful to your gospel and that as far as they do that, you would continue to bless them. Lord, now help us as we look at this passage. Understand what it says, because that's what we need. Help us to live faithfully in light of it. Point us back to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Some of you, um, either because you've lived there or because you've had experience um, with this place, are familiar with California's notorious reputation for wildfires. Um, We hear about it, it seems like, almost every year. But in 2018, there was what's what's called as the Camp Fire, uh, which is a what's been known as the largest and most destructive fire within the state of California. It was ignited by a faulty power line, just a power line that the winds uh, ended up causing some sparks and it was a dry season. And then from there, a a wildfire erupted. And this power line was run by a company called PG&E. Now, PG&E had a, a philosophy when it came to maintenance and repair of their lines that was run to failure. And so rather than maintain it, they would replace the parts once they failed. Now that led to what was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. Here's some of the stats on it. The wildfire burned 153,336 acres, which ended up being about 240 square miles. It destroyed nearly 19,000 homes evacuated 52,000 people, cost 16.5 billion, with a B, in damages, and led to the deaths of 85 individuals. Now, that power line, they did an investigation, and they found out that PG&E was very aware of the dangers of that power line. Just if they were to do maintenance and repair on each power line similar to that, it would end up being costly. For each one overhead power line to completely replace it would cost roughly between three hundred dollars to $500,000. Now, not everyone needed to be entirely replaced, but certain parts need to be replaced, so it may have been a little bit less than that, but it was costly. However, I think we would agree that the cost to replace that one power line was significantly less of a cost than the $16.5 billion that the fire ended up causing. And so as we look at the text today, we see some maintenance that needs to be done within the Corinthian church. And there's a cost associated with that. And Paul is making the argument that the cost is worth it. One of the things that may come up as we look at this is is we can't force people how to live, right? We can't, Paul is advocating for the church to do something, but we can't force individuals as to how to live. Sometimes it'd be nice, but we just don't have that ability. And so the question is, how does this text relate to us today? 
And the primary point that Paul is getting through here in this chapter is that the purity of the church matters. The purity of the church matters. It mattered then, and it matters now. And so addressing issues within the church is costly, but it's something that we must do. It's far more costly not to address them. And so if we, if we do this faithfully, if we do address these issues that may come up in our church, if the Corinthian church does this faithfully, here's what ends up happening with churches. It will benefit the sanctification of those who are members at that church. It will also increase the shepherding care. The shepherding care will be elevated at that church. And it will also help members there fight sin more effectively. But then also, so not only will the church benefit, but also our witness as a church will be more persuasive. If we are people who preach holiness and and preach being faithful to Christ, and then we live in a way completely contrary to that, then that hurts our witness. And so to address issues ends up giving us a more persuasive witness. It also shows that we have a genuine love for one another. And then, and perhaps most importantly, it displays the gospel in a very vivid way. And so some background as we look at this text, there's, there's a lot here that we're going to unpack, but just some quick background is this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He's in Ephesus. He's writing to Corinth. The name of books are associated with who the letter is going to. So Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. This is his second letter to them. There's another one elsewhere beforehand, but this is his second one, even though it's called 1 Corinthians. And then there are plenty of issues that Paul addresses in this particular letter. Commentators will say there's, there's no less than 10. You could parse those out in various different ways, but there's at least 10 issues that Paul is addressing in this book of 1 Corinthians. In chapters 1 through 4, which we just finished, we're addressing one primary issue, divisions within the church, ungodly divisions within the church. Now, chapters 1 through 6 are essentially addressing issues that Paul has heard from a report from Chloe's people. We read about them in chapter 1. And so Paul is replying to a letter that the Corinthians sent back to him from his first letter. But before he addresses their stuff, and that starts in chapter 7, he addresses a report that he heard back from Chloe's people. So that first first four chapters there, he's uh, addressing the ungodly divisions within the church. And now chapter 5, he addresses something else that has been reported to him, which we just read and we'll unpack here momentarily. So as we look at this passage, as we look at unpacking it, there are four things for us to see. There's the problem. You'll find these in your bulletin as well. There's the solution, the reason, and the summary. Paul gives us a nice summary there at the end. So the problem, the solution, the reason, and the summary. So starting with the problem, we see this in the first two verses. So Paul moves on to a second issue reported to him by Chloe's people. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So Paul's second issue with them has has two parts, really. So the, the primary issue is that there's severe sexual immorality within the church. So part one is the severe sexual immorality. And Paul, in the very next chapter, so 1 Corinthians 6, he's going to encourage the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality. So he picks up on this a little bit more. And Lord willing, we'll see that as we get into that chapter. But 
This is sexual morality that is so pervasive that not even non-believers, not even pagans, would give the thumbs up of approval to. So he says, this isn't just sexual sin. This is severe sexual sin. A man has his father's wife. Man has a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And this seems to be well known to all. So Chloe's people are aware of this, and it's because the word has gotten around. And so now not only is Paul and the Corinthian church aware, but it seems like others are as well. Now also notice in that passage, it says a man has his father's wife. Not a man had. This is present tense. So it appears that this man is continuing on in this, and he's unrepentant. So maybe they've had the conversation with him. Maybe they haven't. But regardless, the man still has his father's wife. And, as we'll find out, he's still claiming to be a brother. So that's part one, that there's severe sexual immorality within the church. The second part comes up in, in verse two. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So part two of the problem is that they're proud of their tolerance. There's severe sexual immorality within the church, and that's, that's a huge issue. But to add insult to injury, they're, they're proud of their tolerance of this man. They're arrogant. That word literally means proud or, or puffed up. So rather than being proud, Paul is telling them, you shouldn't be proud. He said, you should mourn. You should grieve. The appropriate response to sin, especially unrepentant sin, is grief. The word there used is, is one that would be used for the loss of a loved one. This man is unrepentant in his sin, and the church seems to be proud that they are tolerating it. And so, Paul, right from the get-go, is saying, this is not acceptable church. And he'll give us reasons and explanations as we go, but just looking at these first two verses, we have to recognize that the Corinthians are tolerating sin in their church, and that's, that's a wicked thing in and of itself. There's sin that needs to be addressed, but the fact that they're not addressing it is sinful. We talk about sins of commission and omission. When we sin, we, we, a sin of commission is when we commit a sin. The sin of omission is when we don't do what we should do. So one of the things that Paul is saying is that there's a committed sin here, and now you're committing the sin of omission by, by not addressing it. And you're, in fact, proud that you're not addressing it. Paul rebukes them. So a question for us is that when sin pops up in our lives, how do we address it? Are we, are we proud of it? Or do we mourn over it? Do we have sorrow? See, the primary difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is their approach to sin. Do they fight against it? Christians fight against sin. They grieve when they lose that fight. We do lose that fight sometimes. And we're reminded to repent, and to be reminded of the gospel. However, non-Christians embrace their sin rather than fight it. In fact, non-Christians tend to fight those who call their sin sin. Tend to be upset with those who call it sin. J.C. Ryle says this about this idea. He says that the principal fight of the Christian is with the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of those things, the world, the flesh, and the devil are things that are trying to condone and point us back to sin. And the primary fight of the Christian is against those things. We must fight sin, not embrace it. The man here seems to be embracing it. The church here seems to be okay with that. In fact, they're proud of it. It's not indicative of 
Christian living. And so, Paul tells the congregation to remove this man. And he gets into not only what the problem is, but now he looks at the solution. So let's, let's look at verses 3, verse 3 through 5. He lays out next steps. So, I'm going to go one verse at a time here. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's absent in body, but he's present in spirit. So what's going on here? Is this like a Star Wars holographic message? Like, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. I, I don't think that's quite what's happening. But Paul's recognizing I am, I am physically separate. But spiritually speaking, I'm, I'm there. And what he means is that he's, he's sharing his spiritual judgment on the matter. He says, look, I'm telling you what my spiritual judgment is here. So although I'm absent, it can be as if I'm right there with you. I'm sharing with you what the verdict is, what you need to do. This is my spiritual judgment. He says, as if present, I've already pronounced judgment. So there's, there's more to be said on that, to unpack that a little bit more. But at the very least, it's him sharing his spiritual judgment with them as if he were there. So let's look at verse 4 now. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, Paul gives them instruction. He says, you need to remove this man. And now he's kind of giving them the how-to. He's giving them steps. And there's three steps here that we want to see. Step one is assemble. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, churches assembled, we come together. So he says, when you come together, when the church assembles, it acts with authority. Church is made visible when it's gathered, when it's assembled. There's no closer relationship on the planet than that of a husband and a wife. Ideally, those are the, that's the closest relationship that we can see. And so when Christ tells his people that I am with you always, he's telling the truth. But he's especially with them when his bride is made visible. He's especially present in that moment. So yes, it's true that Christ is always with his people. We see this in Matthew 28 and other places. But he's especially with them when they gather. Where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. There's a heightened presence going on when we gather on the Lord's day around the right preaching of the word and the right practice of the ordinances. So notice the authority that Paul gives this church. Paul says, here's the judgment. Here's what needs to happen. But he tells them what to do. He says, look, I'm telling you what to do. But I can't just tell you he's, he's no longer one of you. You guys have to act. You have to come together. You have to hear my, my verdict here. You have to make a decision. This is you exercising the authority that Christ has invested in you as a church. He's an apostle. And he's deferring to the church. Saying you need to act. So step one was assemble. Step two is share Paul's opinion. So he says, and my spirit is present. He says, when you assemble, my spirit is present. He's getting at when you assemble, share, share what I shared about this man, my thoughts here. Let everybody know what my spiritual judgment is. And Paul's spiritual judgment is very valuable. He's an apostle. And so it's very helpful for them to, to know what he is saying. And he's the one who founded the church in Corinth. So they have high respect for him, understandably so. But there's also, when he says my spirit is present, this is what I was talking about when I said I was going to elaborate a little bit more. There's a common union going on. Because as we talked about where Jesus Christ is especially present with his bride, 
So where two or three are gathered in his name, the Corinthian church assembles in the name of Jesus Christ, as Paul laid out. Paul is united by faith in Christ. And so when the church is assembled in the name of Christ, Paul is united to Christ, there's a common union in Christ that's going on. So when the church acts, Paul says, yes, yes and amen, I'm with you. We are both unified in Christ. So wherever Christ is given the power to act to two or three who are gathered in his name, Paul says, yes, act in authority there, and I'm affirming the actions you are taking because they have a common union in Christ. Step one was assemble. Step two was share Paul's opinion. Step three was exercise church discipline. So if you are a visitor here today, thank you for being here. We don't typically go off and just talk about church discipline. This is a fun topic, uh, as I'm sure you are in agreement in, but this is the passage that we're in. So we've gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, now, now we're in 5. We can't just skip this because this is awkward. It might not be friendly to visitors. We have to, we have to talk about this. So Paul talks about church discipline, so therefore we have to talk about it. So this next phrase, he says, deliver this man to Satan. If you're a visitor, thank you for being here. <laughs> this is Paul calling on the church to exercise the binding and loosing authority that Christ has invested in it. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So where there's a faithful proclamation of who Jesus is, there's binding and loosing. But then he elaborates more, Matthew 18, in verse 18. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that passage is where we also see the two or three gathered in my name. So there's a faithful proclamation of who Jesus is. There's two or three gathered around that. There's binding and loosing authority. So when Paul says, deliver this man to Satan, he's saying outwardly remove or loose him from the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God, i.e. the church. No longer make it known that he is a member in good standing among you. Loose him. Deliver him to the kingdom of darkness. That is outside of the church. Christ reigns within the church. That's where his kingdom is made known. We are small embassies of that kingdom. It's outside of the church where Satan rules. It's not to say that Satan has more power than Christ, but we see Christ's power most visibly manifested within the church, and we see Satan's manifested and seen outside of the church. So he's saying, loose this man from the kingdom of God and deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, when we see the, for the destruction of the flesh, if you do a, a word study on the flesh, you're going to find that typically means the sinful nature. And so when he says for the destruction of the flesh, he says, by loosing him, by giving him over to the world, Hopefully that's what jars him into recognizing my sinful actions here have, have serious consequences. And hopefully by loosing, that leads him to putting the flesh to death and coming back. That's the desire. Paul even says that. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Connor did a great job explaining the day of the Lord. 
And so if his sinful nature is destroyed, what will happen is this man will repent. He'll confess his sin. He'll ask for forgiveness. And he will be granted it because that's the good news of the gospel. So Paul says, church, you, you can't affirm this guy anymore. You need to do the final step. If you read Matthew 18, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but there's the additional instructions there of how to go about church discipline. He says, hey, you can't affirm him as a Christian anymore. Rather, refer to him as a Gentile and tax collector. So, we see that this man is no longer to be affirmed as a member in good standing. And that's one of the primary reasons for church discipline is what we talked about, is the repentance and the salvation of that individual. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the primary reasons. So the church must come together. This is what Paul's saying. Must come together, assemble, hear from those who are leading. So in this case, it's the apostle Paul. He is an apostle. He's giving his spiritual judgment. And then they are to take action. The church is to take action. They are called to bind or to loose. Are we going to continue to affirm him as a member in good standing? Are we going to bind him to the kingdom? Or are we going to loose him and say, hey, we can't affirm you anymore because you seem to be pursuing unrepentant sin? As a Christian this morning, be encouraged that this kind of thing that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5, that's elaborated again with more detail in Matthew 18 in terms of the steps, these things are meant to aid in your discipleship. They're not meant to, to scare you or to freak you out, but they are meant to aid in your discipleship. And then further, and if you are a member at Citizens, you may have seen this take place at one of our members' meetings, but further, when, you take, when the church makes a decision to loose somebody, that serves as a warning to the other members there who may be considering pursuing unrepentant sin. To be able to see, oh wow, the church made a decision that they can no longer affirm him because he continued on in unrepentant sin. I know there's some unrepentant sin in me. I need to, I need to change my course. I need to adjust. Otherwise, that could be me. It serves to aid in your discipleship it also serves as a, as a warning for those who are considering sin. Now, clarification. We're, we're going to run into those who are in unrepentant sin all the time outside of the church. This passage is not referring to your coworker who makes no claim to be a Christian. You have to go and exercise church discipline on him tomorrow and when you get to work. And this is not what we're going for. But for those who are claiming to be Christians, those who are members at a local church, we have a responsibility to call them back when they go off in unrepentant sin. So, maybe you're here and, and you're not a Christian, and you might be thinking, why in the world would anybody join themselves to a local church they're going to be publicly put on blast like that? Why? I gave some of the benefits there. But just a couple clarifications as well. One, we, we don't publicize change in membership um, publicly. We, don't, we just don't do that. You're not going to hear that from the pulpit. Hey, here are three people who are no longer members. Here are six who are. We do that in members' meetings. Those are for members only. So it, it's not publicly putting, putting anybody on blast. But second, Christians are members of a body. We, if you see this, we're in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. We, we see uh, the church being described as members of Christ's body. When you lose a hand, it'd be noticed as, it'd be called dismembered. 
dismemberment. And so we use this terminology because the reality is we are members of Christ because we are in Christ, but that's made visible through membership in the local expression of that body at a local church. So Christians are members of a body, and so therefore we, we welcome camaraderie. We want to walk alongside one another. We recognize that we can't do this on our own. And so to have a brother or a sister say, hey, I'm concerned about this in your life is a gift of grace from God to put that person in your life, to point you back to Christ. Let's not take that for granted. So we've seen the problem. We've seen the solution. The problem, sexual, severe sexual immorality. The solution, church discipline. Now the reason. Now this one we're, we're going to unpack maybe even slightly more than the last one. And the last point is brief. So bear with me here. But the reason that we would engage in this, Paul gives, is the Passover. The Passover. So look at me in verse 6. We're going to read verse 6 through 8. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's using a lot of Passover language here. He says leaven, unleavened bread, Passover lamb, festival, he's referring to the Passover festival. He says let's celebrate the Passover. So that, that festival would take place once a year for Israelites, and it would be an annual celebration of them being reminded of what God did to deliver them from the bondage of the Egyptians. And what took place was Yahweh told his people, hey, sacrifice a lamb without blemish and then take the, the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your doorway. It says, and when the angel of death, death comes through Egypt, it will pass over every household that has the blood of the lamb, that is marked by the blood of the lamb. It says, while you're in there, partake in this feast. And part of that was partaking in unleavened bread so that there'd be no leaven in the house. And so an unleavened household was seen as a, a clean household. Because leaven, the way that you would get leavened bread, was you take a little bit of leaven from the last loaf, and before that you ate, eat that whole thing, you take a little bit of that leaven and put it in with the new loaf. And then when that loaf was almost done, you take a little bit of the leaven, put it in with another loaf. And the little bit of leaven would leaven the whole lump. And so to say unleavened bread, I say, okay, clean slate. We're not going to use any of the old leaven. This is a clean slate. You are new, so eat unleavened bread be marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then what would happen during Passover was the firstborn in Egypt was struck down. And so now, Paul uses that same language to say, hey, God's firstborn, Jesus Christ, was struck down for you on your behalf. He is your unblemished lamb. He is your Passover lamb. He is clean. He is unleavened, to use that verbiage. He says that now you are clean. You are unleavened if you are marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. He says you're no longer identified by your sin, by that old leaven. He says you're now identified by the blood of Christ that cleans you. You're now identified by holiness. And so using that Passover language, Paul provides at least two reasons to act. You said the big one is the Passover, right? But two practical reasons here. 
So the first one, seen in verse 6, unrepentant sin compromises the whole church. It says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We already talked about leaven be, being referred to as uncleanness, unleaven, cleanness. So when he talks about leaven, he's referring to the unrepentant sin within the membership at the church. A little bit of leaven, you put up with a little bit of unrepentant sin, so that's going to compromise the whole church. You can't, you can't just let that slide. And number two, unrepentant sin misrepresents the church. And misrepresents the church to at least two groups of people. Those inside the church and those outside the church. To those inside the church, a confusing message is sent. Why are they? We know that individual, that guy is engaged in that kind of behavior. wonder why no one said anything about that. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's not sinful. Maybe I can pursue that. No one seems to be saying anything. So it compromises the whole church. It sends a confusing message to those inside the church. And to those outside of the church, it sends a hypocritical message. These people preach holiness, but I know the guy over there, he, he's, he's a member there, and he continues to pursue all the stuff that we here in the world do, and nobody seems to be saying anything to him about it. And he doesn't seem too upset about it. People at that church, they're, they're no different than me. It sends a hypocritical message. In fact, Al Mohler has said that the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. I wonder why we have less sway, less impact. I'm sure we could come up with a million reasons. But at least one of them is because we have not pursued church discipline within our churches. We've seen unrepentant sin go on and we said, hey, you know what, it, it would be unloving for us to approach this person. We can't possibly do that. They would leave and they'd go to another church. We can't lose people, for goodness sakes, that would be the worst. Churches need, we as a church, need to pursue holiness together. And when a brother or sister claims to be a, a brother or sister in Christ and yet acts like the rest of the world, we have an obligation to talk with them about it and to call them back. Failing to address unrepentant sin within the church is harmful to the whole church. So for us who do claim to be followers of Christ, one thing to do is to rejoice in what God has done. We were a leavened lump. And now, by Christ, we truly are unleavened. So Paul says, he says, you really are unleavened. He's saying, you really are clean. You're cleansed. It's not to say that we don't wrestle with sin. We still do. But when God looks down on those who are in Christ, he sees a clean and holy people. It's because we're in Christ, the only clean and holy one. He says, you really are clean. You really are cleansed. He says, act like it. But also, for those who are following Christ, if there is any unrepentant sin in our lives, we need, we need to confess it. We can't harbor it. We need to confess, repent, and believe the gospel. Non-Christians in the room, you've seen this before. I alluded to it a little bit. But you've seen churches preach against sin on Sunday only to harbor it as a dear friend during the week. You've seen leaders in churches who are clearly unqualified because they are in unrepentant sin, but because of fear of the fallout or the repercussions, the church keeps them in a position because they're talented. They can draw a crowd. You've seen this. It hurts the whole church. 
Church, something for us to not overlook in this passage is that the woman's not mentioned. You ever wonder that? Why, why is the man mentioned who has his father's wife, but, but the woman's not mentioned? Well, in all likelihood, she wasn't a member of the church. Paul gets at it. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? He says, those inside the church, those who claim to be followers of Christ, that we need to make right judgments on. So, we see the problem, we've seen the solution, we've seen the reason being the Passover and how that impacts. We now get to participate in this new Passover. And now we see Paul summarize this. See the summary. So verses 9 through 13, Paul restates his argument in summary form. So in that first verse there, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He had written to them before, remember? And he had mentioned something about associating with sexually immoral people. And now he clarifies that and offers his summary. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. He says, look, there, there are two groups of people. He gets at that more here in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul clarifies there are two groups of people, those in Christ and those out of Christ. He says, of those outside of Christ, Paul, Paul says, God will judge them. He says, what do I have to do judging them? The world's full of these people. You can't get around it. God judges them. The day of the Lord, that day is coming. He says, but those in Christ... Paul says, this is who the church is to judge. This is who we are. We need to ensure that those who claim to be followers of Christ are, in fact, fighting against sin and following Christ. doesn't mean we don't wrestle with sin. But if anyone does, brother and brother, and is guilty of unrepentant sin, seems to be following after their sin rather than following Christ, we need to call that person back. Hey, hey you say you're a brother. Follow Christ. Follow Christ with us. And if he doesn't, then, then purge him from among you. Because he says, you are unleavened. Be marked by the new leaven, the, the new lump of sincerity and truth. He says, we need to be an honest people. If this person is giving evidence that he's not a believer, then we need to be sincere, and we need to be true and honest that you just may not be a believer and have that conversation with him. But then he, he gives us this kind of confusing phrase that I think is less confusing than we give it credit for, but I'll offer you what, what I think it means. He says, not even to eat with such a one. So does that mean that we, we never, if we see this person who's been removed from the church and we no longer firm as a believer, that you might find him at a restaurant and you can't go over and, and enjoy a french fry with him? Like, is that, is that what he's getting at? I, I don't think that's quite what it is. I think there's more so, Paul's advocating for a fundamental shift in the relationship. Before it was Christian to Christian. And one of the ways that we would show our fellowship with one another is by breaking bread together. Now, I would love, I was talking with Jonathan about this, I would love for that passage to refer to the Lord's Supper. I, I'm not totally convinced that it does, even though I, I would like it to. But there was an act of eating, even outside of the Lord's Supper, that communicated fellowship and association. And he said, hey, don't do things that communicate that things are all still fine. 
There should be a change in the relationship. So as you, if you do get coffee or if you do get lunch with this individual, you're no longer rejoicing at what God has done in your lives, but you're now trying to call this individual to repentance and faith. You're approaching him not as a Christian, but as a non-Christian. You need to steer your conversations that way. You're welcome to look into that more yourself, and if you feel like I got it wrong, then please feel free to, to let me know. But here's the thing that Paul's getting at. He says, look, if someone claims to be a Christian but consistently does not act like a Christian, we cannot, as a church, affirm that individual as a Christian. It's just not what we are called to. So the question could be asked, couldn't this be considered unloving? Couldn't this just push the person further away from the church? There's, there's, we gotta, this person's on the edge. We really need to bring them in. I would submit to you that it would be more unloving to provide false assurance to this individual. And so we have an obligation to bear the truth. There's nowhere else we would rather them be than gathered with God's people, hearing the gospel with the hope that they will be given eyes to see and ears to hear and respond with repentance and faith. So we don't say, hey, doors are shut, you can't come in. Say, hey, we want you here, but we can't affirm you as a believer. We can't give you the signs that would affirm that. Be unloving for a doctor to recognize that you have a terminal illness and not say anything to you about it. Be frustrating. So, church, how do we do this? Well, Matthew 18 provides the framework for that. I'm not going to read that whole passage, but to summarize, it says that if there is a brother or sister who sins against you, then you're to go to them one-on-one. And if that doesn't lead to repentance, if that doesn't work, then bring one or two others with you. And if between two or three of you, you all agree this person is in sin and that person is not convinced by the two or three of you who are telling him or her that they are in sin and need to repent, then we now need to take it to the church. So first, we'll go one-on-one. And then, if that doesn't work, take one or two others with you. If that doesn't work, then let the church know. And then the whole church is to be engaged in trying to call that person to repentance. And then if that doesn't work, then we can no longer affirm this individual as a follower of Christ. If the whole community who is following Christ is calling that person to <laughs> repent and that person does not, then the whole community can no longer affirm that person as being part of their community. This is difficult work. But the purity of the church matters. We need to be engaged in these things. Now the good news is this. Said, the story doesn't end here for this man. If you flip over just a few pages to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 5. Where Paul is writing back to the Corinthians and he says this, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. 
Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. God used the act of church discipline to bring this man back. Paul said the punishment by the majority, so somehow the Corinthian church voted and came up with the majority and said we need to oust this man. We can't affirm him as a believer anymore. Now Paul writes again, he says, hey, that punishment that you by the majority gave him, welcome him back because he's repented. Forgive him. He's asking for forgiveness. It worked. Praise God. Paul says that to not forgive him would be the Corinthian church to be outwitted by Satan. See, Satan wants us to forget the good news of the gospel. Satan wants us to think that church discipline is the final word. It's not. It's designed to bring the person back. It's designed to purify the church and bring the person back. And it worked here. God forgave him as he promises to do with every sinner who repents. The purity of the church matters. So for us as a church, we must address unrepentant sin. We must consistently point one another back to the gospel because we must be reminded that our holiness, our holiness doesn't save us. It's the holiness of another. His forgiveness, Christ's forgiveness, and Christ's holiness is extended out for all those who will repent and believe the good news of the gospel, even the vilest of sinners, as we've read about in this passage. Let's pray. Father, this passage was full, and we are grateful for your good design to purify your church. We pray that we would be a church that takes seriously the call to pursue Christ and holiness. And when we find ourselves in unrepentant sin, we pray that we would show humility to turn from our sin and to be reminded of Christ's holiness and Christ's payment on the cross for our sin. God, we pray that you would help us be a church that's willing to have costly and difficult conversations. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that when those conversations take place, they're not the final word, but you, by your grace, have offered a way for even the vilest of sinners to be brought back to you. We pray that today, anyone who needs to repent, anyone who needs to call on Christ would do so. We ask this in his strong name. Amen.